Hi there, and welcome to Folksy, the podcast where we read folk tales from all over the space-time continuum. We'll skip the pre-roll stuff today because this is actually one of my all-time favorite stories. Today's book is Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker, and the title says it all, truly. Also, as has been standard practice till now, basically, we'll be reading through the first chapter of this wonderful, wonderful collection, which in this case is simply titled In the Beginning. Now I know what you're thinking, that sure sounds like the star of a bigger tale. And it is, but we'll be doing bite-sized tales as has also become the norm. <laughs> anyway, let's get to today's tale, shall we? Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker Chapter 1 In the Beginning In the days of long, long ago, when men built altars and burned sacrifices and worshipped their gods in temples of pure white marble, Jupiter, the greatest of the gods, sat upon his throne on high Olympus and looked down upon the doings of men. The topmost peak of Mount Olympus was covered with clouds, so high it was above all the hills of Greece, and its slopes were thickly wooded. Just how high the mountain really was could only be guessed, for no man had dared to climb even as high as the first cloud line. Though the story goes that once upon a time a wandering shepherd, looking for a strayed lamb, had ventured far up the mountainside and had soon lost his way. He groped about blindly as the mists began to thicken all around him and the sound of his own footsteps terrified him in the dreadful silence that seemed to be suddenly creeping over him. Then a mighty tempest broke over his head and the mountain shook to its very base. From the hand of wrathful Jupiter, fierce thunderbolts were hurled, while the lightning flashed and gleamed through the darkness of the forest, searching out the guilty mortal who had dared to climb too high. No human eye had ever seen the glories of Olympus. No human foot had ever stepped within its sacred halls, where the ceiling was of gold and the pavement of pearl and the thrones of the gods shone with a thousand glittering jewels. Here the gods have made, so said tradition, their eternal seat. The tempest shakes it not, nor is it drenched by showers, and there the snow does never fall. And in the golden light that lies on all, day after day the blessed gods rejoice. Odyssey, Book 6, Line 53 Of the life that was lived among the dwellers on Olympus, not even the poets could claim to know. But sometimes a tired soldier dozing by his campfire dreamed dreams of this wonderful country where the immortal gods walked by night and day. And sometimes a lonely fisherman, looking across the blue waters of the Mediterranean to the crimsoning sunset, saw visions of youth and beauty and life that lasted forever and ever and ever. 
It was long before the memory of man that the gods first came to live on Mount Olympus. And it was still longer ago that all the great powers of the universe fought with each other for the right to rule the world. In this mighty war, which rent the very heavens with the crash of battle, Jupiter at last conquered all his jealous enemies and made himself ruler of the gods and of the world. On that day, he established his dwelling place on Mount Olympus and set the earth below him for a footstool. From his throne in the high heavens, he looked down upon the kingdoms that he had portioned out to each of his brothers, and he saw Neptune, the god of the sea, driving through the waves his chariot drawn by huge, misshapen sea beasts that beat up the thick white foam until it glistened on the sea king's beard and on his crown of shells and seaweed. The other kingdom was so far away that even the all-seeing eyes of Jupiter were strained to catch any glimpses of the shapes that moved noiselessly there. For this was the realm of Pluto, god of the underworld, that dread country of darkness and unending gloom where no ray of sunlight ever came and where the sad spirits of the dead wept for the lost world of love and light and laughter. Sometimes the great billows of clouds that rolled at the foot of the red-gold throne shut out for a moment all sight of the earth at his feet. But however thickly the mists gathered, Jupiter could always see old Atlas standing on the shore of Africa with the heavens resting on his bent shoulders. This giant had stood so long that forests of huge trees had sprung up around his feet and they had grown so tall during the ages and ages that had passed that their topmost branches reached to the giant's waist and almost hid him from the sight of men. No one offered to relieve him of his burden, not even his two brothers Prometheus and Epimetheus, to whom had been given the less difficult task of creating man and placing him in the rich gardens of the earth. There was every kind of plant and animal life in the gardens, and all things were very beautiful in this morning of the world. So beautiful that the gods, who must forever dwell in Olympus, felt sad that no eyes like their own could look upon the green meadows and flower-covered hillsides. So they bade Prometheus and Epimetheus fashion a being which should be like and yet unlike themselves. There was nothing but clay out of which to make this new creature called man. But the brothers spent much time over their task. And when it was finished, Jupiter saw that the work was good, for they had given to man all the qualities that the gods themselves possessed. Youth, beauty, health, strength, everything but immortality. Then Prometheus grew ambitious to add even more to the list of man's blessings. And one day, as he sat brooding by the seashore, he remembered that there was as yet no fire on the earth. For the only flame that burned in all the world was glowing in the sacred halls of Jupiter. 
For a long time, he sat on the seashore. And before night fell, he had formed the daring plan of stealing some of the divine fire that burned for always and always on Mount Olympus and carrying it to the earth that men might revel in its warmth and light. It was a bold thing to dream of doing. But Prometheus forgot the fear of Jupiter's wrath. So determined was he to carry out his plan. And one night, when the gods were in council, seated around the great red-gold throne, he crept softly into the hall, unseen and unheard. The sacred fire was burning brightly on a hearth of polished silver. Some of it Prometheus secreted in a hollow reed and hurried with it back to the earth. Then he waited, with terror at his heart, for he knew that sooner or later the vengeance of Jupiter would search him out, even though he fled to the uttermost parts of the earth. When the council of the gods was over, Jupiter looked down through the clouds and saw a strange light on the earth. For a while he did not realize that it was man building himself a fire. But when he learned the truth, his wrath became so terrible that even the gods trembled and turned away in fear. In a moment, Prometheus was seized and carried off to the Caucasus Mountains, where he was securely chained to a rock and a hungry vulture was sent to tear out his liver and devour it. At night, the vulture, having gorged itself, slept on the rocks above its victim's head. And at night, the liver of the wretched Prometheus grew again, only to be torn out and eaten by the vulture as soon as the sun rose. This terrible punishment kept on for years and years. For though Jupiter heard the cries of Prometheus, and many tales were told of his sufferings, the ruler of the gods never forgave the theft of the sacred fire. Nor would he set Prometheus free. But the story tells us that at last there came an end to this cruel vengeance. For Hercules, son of Jupiter, went wandering one day among the mountains, found the tortured Prometheus and broke his chains after killing the vulture that had been enjoying this hateful feast. Though the gods were rejoiced at his freedom, the name of Prometheus was never spoken on Mount Olympus for fear of Jupiter's all-hearing ears. But on the earth, men uttered his name in their prayers and taught their children to honor the fire-giver as one of the greatest amongst heroes. And that was today's tale. Now, while the first written record of the Prometheus parable was in the works of Greek poet Hesiod in the 8th century BC, well, the stories of a theft of fire by like a trickster figure, they're apparently spread throughout the mythologies of, you know, this particular time period. And this was a brilliant take on a classic, seeing as it was published in 1913 at a time when most of the classics had already been retold, though perhaps not as well as this particular instance. 
I first found the story through the wonderful world of Percy Jackson. It's an amazing entry into the world of Greek mythology, though Rick Riordan, the author, has surely taken some liberties with the facts, basically, you know, selecting his sources a little differently than Miss Baker here. For instance, you may have heard the Roman god names here instead of the Greek ones. You know, Jupiter instead of Zeus, Neptune for Poseidon, and Pluto for Hades. Turns out some texts do actually use these instead of the now prevalent Greek god names. And just so you don't get disenchanted with the story's shortness and the lack of details about who Prometheus really was and what his motivations were and everything, don't worry, there are so many variations of this particular story that we are definitely going to be revisiting it. And perhaps we'll also have time for like a comparison between this one and the next one. Also, great news, we have the submission thread available on the subreddit now, as well as episode guides for upcoming episodes. There's a link in the description, so if you want to hear a specific story, make sure to come suggest it, or you know, vote for it in case somebody's already done it in the submission thread. Well, that's it for today. We'll be back with another amazing tale same time next Saturday. This is Izer, signing off.